0: So it's, it's interesting that last week, uh, Brian, Brian mentioned that the, the Wednesday night study that we're doing, uh, the Behold Your God study, was kind of what spurred his sermon. Uh, interesting, because as he was preaching, I thought, well, that study is also kind of the catalyst uh, to what I'm preaching this morning. Um, I, I am blessed uh, that, that the Lord saw fit to to put me in a family uh, that, that are all believers. Uh, my granddad was... Uh, a pastor for a time, and a missionary for a time, and worked heavily within um, just, just Baptist life. My dad was a, a pastor. Uh, and so I, I, I heard the gospel from a young age. Um, I, I came to Christ at 12 years old, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And so from a young age, I understood Jesus died for my sin. If I repent of my sin and I trust in Christ, I'll be saved from that, from that sin. But uh, as many of you, I'm sure, have experienced, um, as as you grow older, you come to a deeper understanding of what that means, that Jesus died for my sin. And there's been a few times that I can look back very very specifically as times uh, that that the weight of the gospel sunk deeper into my soul um, and led me into a deeper gratitude uh, for what was accomplished. One of those was actually a college Bible study. Um, and it, and it's funny because we, Megan and I were married and we went to this college Bible study. Uh, it was, you know, lots of 18, 19 year old kids. And I was, I was a 23 year old, uh, army veteran had just, you know, been in Iraq not too, too long before that. So we really did not fit in well. It was uncomfortable. It was weird because all these kids are, you know, want to go to like Taco Bell after and we're just like, oh, we got to like pay bills and stuff. So, um, <laughs> I remember going to that Bible study twice, but one of those, we walked through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and it, it just, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks um, that we were dead in our sin, but God made us alive. That we were children of wrath, but we're now children of God's love. And the last couple of weeks during this Bible study has been another one of those times. And, and what's interesting is for me, it always seems to be a deeper understanding of God's wrath. That leads me into a deeper stand, understanding of the gospel and Jesus's death, um, and so in week I think it was uh, week nine was on God's wrath, and there was particularly there was one quote that stood out to me, um, and we I mean we kind of chewed on this quote for a while in our in our small group, um, and it said it says this one glorious fact. Which we must not overlook is that the cross is the only place where God's wrath is fully satisfied. No act of judgment, not the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or the Babylonian exile, ever fully satisfied God's wrath. Even hell will never fully satisfy the legal requirements for punishment. Sin is an infinite offense. Hell can never end And must always be the judgment to come. Because hell is not payment for the infinite offense. It is punishment for crimes against God. The only place where we see the wrath of God towards sin fully satisfied is when the sinless Lamb of God bore the sins of his people on the cross and died. His infinite worth as the God-man brought an infinite payment and satisfied God's Wrath. We're going to come back to this quote this morning uh, as we talk about propitiation and what it means that Jesus bore the weight of God's wrath upon Himself on the cross. And we, in our prayer time before the service, I I mentioned what I was preaching on, and I said, you know, we talk often about the fact that God or that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross, and I I think sometimes we don't stop to think about what that really means, Um, and so. We're going to talk about propitiation. Um, And and another phrase that's often used instead of propitiation in some of your translations might be atoning sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement, uh, mercy seat, which is a rabbit trail I would love to chase, but we don't have time. Um, But here's a definition, and this is from Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in doing so, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in doing so, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. So when we sing in Christ alone, uh, not accidental that we sing that song this morning, uh, that on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, interestingly, uh, we sing that song and we celebrate uh, the, the Presbyterian Church USA which is a, a liberal wing of the Presbyterian denomination, Don't, not to be confused with the PCA, but the PCUSA, a very liberal wing. And they were putting together a new hymn book, and they wanted to put In Christ Alone in the hymn book. Uh, but they did not like the line that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So they wanted to change that line to the love of God is magnified instead of the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, is it true that the love of God was magnified on Calvary? Absolutely. It's the greatest example of God's love, is what happened um, on the cross. But the point is they wanted to change that because they didn't like the thought of God's wrath being satisfied. Now, fortunately, the authors of the hymn, the Gettys, said absolutely not. Um, And so the PCUSA hymnal does not include um, that song. Also interesting, this last week I was uh, you know, I, I just put In Christ Alone in Spotify, and I was trying to listen to some different versions of it, and I was scrolling down. What I really wanted was a heavy metal version of it. I was just curious <laughs> if one existed. Um, I'm not even a metal guy. I was just like, this would be a great song for that. But I came across one that was a BYU choir, and I thought, huh, how, how, can, how can an LDS choir sing this song? So I listened to it, and they were a cappella, and it was beautiful. If you love like vocal choral performances, it's beautiful, right? So they finished verse 1 and I'm like, "Okay, what are they going to do with verse 2?" because there's problematic stuff, right? Uh, in Jesus the fullness of God dwells, right? Uh, the wrath of God is satisfied. Well, they finished verse 1 and then uh, just go right to verse 3. So they just that's how they that's how they did it. They just pretended verse 2 didn't even exist. But I make those points because this idea that, that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross, is central to biblical Christianity. It is central to the gospel. If we remove that fact from the gospel, we remove the gospel entirely, and Christ died for nothing, and we're still dead in our sins. So my hope this morning uh, is is for twofold—well, it's really the same hope. Um, It's that we would come to understand uh, the weight of what happened to Jesus on Calvary, why it happened. That's for everybody. Now, for the believer in here this morning, I hope that will lead you to a deeper appreciation for the gospel, a deeper gratitude, deeper motivation for obedience in response to what God has done for us. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, um, I I hope that as we talk about God's wrath, that that would weigh heavy on your soul, um, that, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross would weigh heavy on you, and I pray that the Lord would draw you to repentance and belief in the gospel this morning. So we're going, to talk about, we're going to talk about the need for propitiation. We're going to talk about the provision for propitiation. And then we're going to talk about the necessity or the, the motivation, the motivation of propitiation. So the need for propitiation starts with the wrath of God. I'm going to read this quote by A.W. Pink. This was quoted in that Behold Your God study. He says, It is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God As something for which they need to make an apology. Or we at least wish there were no such thing. While some do not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, many are far from regarding it with delight. They like to not think about it. They don't consider it a theme for profitable contemplation. So he says something for which they need to make an apology. And I wonder how many gospel presentations kind of carry this sense of, I don't want to talk too much about God's wrath against sin, because I don't want to, I don't want to like, turn people off of this. I don't want to upset people. I don't want to offend people. Um, may, you know, maybe we'll say, Jesus died for your sin, which is true. But don't always explain, what does that mean that Jesus died for your sin, you, you can go really far with it, you can go all the way as far as progressive Christianity goes with it, that wants to pretend that sin and god 's wrath don't even exist. But I do wonder um, I, I wonder if this part is true in this quote that, that maybe oftentimes we don't view god 's wrath with delight as something that we should delight in, and why should we delight in god 's wrath? It's because if God is holy and if God is righteous and God is just, perfectly, as the Bible says he is, then God must hate all things that are opposed to his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. So why do we delight in God's wrath? Because we delight that God is holy and that he's righteous and he's just. If, if, if God did not possess wrath, if God did not intensely hate sin, then he would not be a holy God. He would not be a just God. He would not be a righteous God. Wayne Grudem defines God's wrath simply as his intense hatred of sin. So should we not delight in the fact that God intensely hates sin? I want to read uh, a few verses just to remind us of God's wrath as revealed to us in, in the Scriptures. This, this morning is a, a more of a topical sermon um, on, uh, on the theme of propitiation, and so there's not going to be one text that we're going to be in. Uh, you're more than welcome to Bible drill and try to keep up um, as, as I read these, uh, but, but I'm going to kind of rapid fire through some verses so we get the idea. Uh, Psalm chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you, From the face of the earth. Then later in Deuteronomy in chapter 32, verses 39 through 41 See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. And will repay those who hate me. In Exodus 32, chapter 9 or chapter 32, verses nine through 10. The Lord said to Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. And Lest we think, as some do, that God's wrath is an Old Testament concept. Uh, that, that the God of the Old Testament is mean and nasty and the God of the New Testament is, all, uh, is just love. Let's read a few verses from the New Testament. Romans two five, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. John 3.36, in the same chapter, as for God so loved the world, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want to point out some phrases from these verses that we just read. If a man does not repent, God has prepared for him his deadly weapons. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, And he destroy you. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I want you to notice something in those in those verses. God's wrath does not just burn against sin, God's wrath burns against the sinner against the sinner, not just the sin. And that leaves humanity with a bit of a problem, right? Because as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is in our nature. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing else, and God's wrath burns against us because of that. Ephesians 2.3 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. Romans 5.10 tells us that apart from Christ, we are God's enemy. We're not all children of God, despite what people like to say. Apart from Christ, we are God's enemy. I'm going to read um, from the the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Uh, It's, It's kind of cool because this was not planned at all, but this is actually the chapter that we kind of talked about in Sunday school this morning. It's the fall of mankind, sin, and its punishment. And I'm going to read to you a selection from it. It says, by this sin, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them, and through this, death came upon all. And all became dead in sin, completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. By God's appointment, they were the root and the representatives of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and partakers of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. All actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good. And we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. For the Christian this morning, what I I hope you see is the, the depth of the corruption that God pulled you out of and saved you from. If you are here and you have not repented and believed in Christ, then I hope you see the depth and the weight of the corruption that you still live in, that you are still dead in your sin, that you are an enemy of God, that you are alienated from God, by nature a child of wrath. And if it was left there, there would be no hope. If it was left up to us, there would be no hope. So we have the need for propitiation. It's the wrath of God. And now we have the provision of propitiation, the Son of God. John Piper wrote this. He said, To save sinners and at the same time magnify the worth of his glory, God lays our sin on Jesus and abandons him to shame and slaughter on the cross, the clearest and most important biblical statement of this truth is found in romans three twenty three through twenty six If I, you could turn there if you want to, that might be the, the best for you to turn to this morning. If I were asked what is the most important paragraph in the Bible, I think this is the paragraph I would name. It goes to the very root of the Christian gospel and lays bare the heart of God like few other texts so Romans three starting in verse twenty one We're going to read through 26. It says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. It says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So what's the provision If God's wrath rests upon the sinner, not just your sin, but the sinner himself or herself, what is the provision? The provision is that God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to bear God's wrath upon himself. And so we're going to talk about this. And we need to remember that what happened on the cross was not primarily about the physical aspect. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, it's a depiction of the crucifixion and everything that happened along with it, and it's horrifying. But we need to remember that Jesus is not the only person who was ever crucified. He wasn't even the only person crucified on that day on that hill. There were two others with him. Jesus is not the only person to ever die a painful death. According to the early church fathers, they wrote that the apostle Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified upright in the manner of his Savior. Here's what we need to remember. As awful as the physical pain, the physical toil of the cross was, it goes deeper than that. An article on Desiring God, someone wrote, "...it can be hard for us to emotionally connect with what the cross really was. The terrible means of Rome executing its wrath upon its worst offenders. And Jesus was executed on a cross. He was counted as among the worst offenders. His death was real and it was really terrible. He was an object of wrath, but not just of Roman and Jewish wrath. In fact, not mainly of Roman and Jewish wrath. Jesus was primarily the object of his Father's wrath. Christ, by the shedding of his blood, turned away the Father's wrath toward sinners. We can comprehend the physical death, not from experience, obviously, but people die gruesome deaths often. And we can comprehend that aspect. What we cannot fully comprehend is What was going on beyond that? What it means to bear the full weight of God's wrath on himself. I want to go back to that quote that we read at the beginning. One glorious fact which we must not overlook is that the cross is the only place where God's wrath is fully satisfied. No act of judgment, not the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the Babylonian exile, ever fully satisfied God's wrath. Even hell will never fully satisfy the legal requirements for punishment. Sin is an infinite offense. Hell can never end and must always be the judgment to come because hell is not payment for the infinite offense, it is punishment for crimes against God. The only place where we see the wrath of God towards sin fully satisfied is when the sinless Lamb of God bore the sins of his people on the cross and died. His infinite worth as the God-man brought an infinite payment and satisfied God's wrath. So a world-destroying flood did not fully satisfy God's wrath. Jesus's death did. The Babylonian exile did not fully satisfy God's wrath. Jesus's death did. The plagues in Egypt, the death of the firstborn, did not fully satisfy God's wrath. Jesus' death did. Here's the one that that got me. This is what did it when we read this. Eternity in hell, even eternity in hell, doesn't fully satisfy God's wrath. Jesus' death did. So do you see the weight of that? Do you understand the weight of that? That whatever Jesus experienced on the cross fully bore an eternity's worth of God's wrath in a matter of hours. Listen to this. There's, there's a line in the Apostles' Creed that reads, Jesus suffered under, under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And then it says this, He descended to hell. And there's been a lot of debate over what, what is meant by that statement. Um, and, and even did, did they mean it this way? Did they mean is that, is there truth to it? Uh, so to the point that I, when I was in, uh, doing my undergrad, uh, I was taking a doctrines class and our big project was everybody had to take a line from the apostles creed and write a paper about it. Well, I chose that line. Um, and essentially it was, I don't know, 12, 13 page paper. And my thesis was nobody knows. Right. Uh, and I got an A plus on the paper. Because the professor basically was like, that's the best answer is no, no one can really come to a consensus on what they're talking about with this line. One way to explain it is to say, to replace the word hell with death so that we would say Jesus fully descended into death, meaning that Jesus fully experienced and tasted death. It wasn't just some kind of fainting like some people might want to claim. But with that quote, it hit me that, that hell is the eternal outpouring of God's wrath on sinners. In God's infinite holiness and his infinite righteousness, His his wrath has to be poured out infinitely against sinners. His wrath is never fully satisfied, but in Jesus, his wrath was fully satisfied. The only thing that can mean is that on the cross, And I want you to think first person with this, okay? Let's not make it an ethereal thing, okay? On the cross, the eternity in hell that you deserve was poured out on Christ. That's what it means that Jesus died in our place. It's not some, oh, he paid for our sin, he was an example, whatever. Jesus bore your eternity's punishment in hell on himself. To the point to where, you're, why did Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why. Because he was bearing an eternity's worth of wrath on himself because of his love for you. Now, how can that happen? How can anyone bear an eternity's worth of wrath in what? Three hours? If one is Eternal. And if one is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and undeserving of a single drop of wrath to be poured on him, if it's all dumped on his head, then he's able to take on an eternity's worth of wrath in hours. So Jesus cries out, it is finished and died. So listen to me, Christian. God's wrath that should have been justifiably and righteously poured out on you for all eternity instead was poured out on the only righteous person who has ever lived. It was poured out on his head. So instead, it was poured out, as we sang, wicked, vile, helpless are we. We deserve God's wrath on our heads. Instead, it was poured out on the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And on the cross, Jesus fully felt fully experienced the weight of all of God's wrath for all of those who would trust in Christ. If that does not lead you to gratitude, if that does not lead you to a deeper appreciation for the gospel, if that doesn't lead you to obedience, then you are not hearing what's being said. I want us to consider another aspect of this, and that's in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. So, so Jesus bore the full weight of, of an eternity's worth of God's wrath on himself to the point where he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he bore God's wrath upon himself and he became a curse. I want us to try to explain a little bit what this what this means. Um, you can flip over to number six if you want to, but i 'll just read it um, We always say don't take my word for it right that i 'm that i 'm actually reading it but i, I pro- this was copy pasted from the e s v and logos uh, so I promise i didn 't make this up number six verses twenty four through twenty six this is a a benediction um, often hear it in the modern day still as well it says The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is a a passage of blessing, right? This is a passage of blessing. What is the opposite of a blessing? It's a curse. So, R.C. Sproul. Uh, he, he helpfully reverses this passage to help us understand what it means for Christ to become a curse. And now, honestly, there's, there's any number of, of ways that we could look at this, uh, but I, th- I, th- I think this, this hits home for us. So here's that blessing reversed into curse form. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. So here's the point, and this, this is a, a point, I'm, I'm thankful Gus sent me a, a sermon by Paul Washer uh, where he explains this idea that Jesus became a curse for us. Uh, and he reads all of Deuteronomy chapter 29, and, and I wanted to do it, and then I realized that would take like 15 minutes to, to read all that. Uh, but he makes this point, okay? Okay and I want want you to really chew on this, that this is what you should hear. This should be your greeting on the day of judgment. This is the only voice you should hear from God. And if you die without Christ, this is what you will hear from God when you face him on judgment day. This is what you should hear. May the Lord curse you and abandon you May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. That should be, Christian, that should be the voice you hear on judgment day. Deservedly so. Instead, that voice fell on Jesus. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And when he, when he hung on the tree, as Jesus hangs on the tree, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Father does not look at Jesus and see the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Instead, he views him as a man who is cursed. He views him as one With all of our sin imputed to him. That's what it means that our sin was imputed to Christ. That when the Father looked at the Son, he did not see the spotless Lamb of God. He saw all of the sin of his people and he saw a curse. Though he committed no no sin, right? He who knew no sin became sin. And the Father looked on the Son, the eternal Son, and said, May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you. The Father says that to the Son as he's pouring out an eternity's weight of wrath upon him. And the Son says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the full weight of God's wrath is poured on Christ, Jesus says, To tell us, it is finished. The perfect wrath of God is satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God, motivated by the perfect love of God. I'm going to read a few more verses. First John 4, 7, and 10. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I hope now when you read propitiation, the weight of that word is in your mind. Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then, of course, John three sixteen through 18 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, And then one more, this is not from Scripture, but this is verse 2 of the hymn, Here is Love, that we sing often. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. God is under no compulsion to save us. God was under no compulsion to send his son to be the propitiation of our sin. From the time of the fall, God would have been perfectly righteous and perfectly just for all of humanity and all of history to be born dead in sin, to live dead in sin, to die dead in sin and spend eternity having the wrath of God poured out on them. Perfectly justified in doing so. So when people say it's not fair anyone goes to hell, it's not fair that everybody doesn't go to hell, right? God of perfect wrath is the God of perfect love, of perfect grace. Perfect, perfect mercy. And, and I want us to make sure we remember that these aren't all bits and pieces adding up to God. God is all of these perfectly all the time. It's not like love is the flip side of God's wrath, same side or right, two sides of the same coin. No, God is perfectly wrathful because of his justice and righteousness. And God is perfectly loving all the time, all day, every day. So God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we loved him first, because we didn't. But because of in his compassion, his son bore the full weight of his wrath. So when the Lord saves us, when this Holy Spirit works in our hearts and moves us toward trust and faith in Christ and repentance, as so we repent of our sin, We who were once God's enemies are seated at his table. We who were children of wrath, we're not all God's children. We're all children. Some of us, you know, were born children of wrath, right? We who were children of wrath are are now God's children. We who were once spiritual orphans have been adopted into the family of God. We who were objects of God's infinite wrath are now objects of God's infinite, unchangeable, steadfast love. I'm gonna read Ephesians two, one through ten. I told you that I was, you know, in college and we walked through this and uh, has been my favorite passage of scripture. Sins. Ephesians two, one through ten. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power, the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. in them, So, Christian, this morning, now maybe, maybe everything I just preached, you're saying, duh, right? Um, but, but sometimes I think it hits us at a deeper level. What was accomplished on the cross? And so, I, I would hope this morning that you're led into gratitude um, as you contemplate the fact. And this is one, I have to admit, I had never contemplated that when Jesus bore the, the wrath of God, On himself, on the cross, that he was bearing my full eternity's worth of wrath in hell on himself. That he was becoming a curse for me. So I hope that would lead us to deeper gratitude. I hope that would lead us, as Ephesians 2 1 through 10 says, uh, to obedience. Right For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, but for the for the non-Christian here this morning um what what I've really done is answered this question: What's the point of Christianity? I've asked people that before uh, like, oh yeah, I grew up in church or I go to church often and, and and I like to ask that question, What would you say is the point of Christianity? Oh, well, to be a better person or um good morals or you know whatever. This morning is the point of the Christian faith right here. This is the heart of the gospel. That God is a holy and righteous God who will not let sin go unpunished. And that's a good thing. Nobody wants a county judge who lets people do whatever they want and doesn't punish them, right? If a, if a judge lets a murderer walk free, we would call that judge unjust, unrighteous. We delight that God is holy and righteous and that his justice is perfect all the time. And because of God's holiness and righteousness, he can have nothing to do with you and your sin. Nothing to do with it. And his wrath burns against your sin. He hates it. And you're guilty by association, right? Right? Because we don't sin, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is in our nature. It is in your nature to sin against God, and God hates it. And if it was up to us, there would be absolutely no hope. Because no one is righteous, no not one. The only hope that we would have is that the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the eternal Son who eternally begotten of the Father, that he would go to the cross in our stead. And that God's wrath would be poured out on the eternal one. That Jesus would become a curse for us. So that instead of looking at us and saying, may God curse you, the Father looks at the Son and says, I curse you. And our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross. And you know what that means? That our sin is imputed to Christ. And when we repent and when we believe in the gospel, that means that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So that when we stand before God on judgment day, again, what we should hear, may the Lord curse you and abandon you, may the Lord keep you in darkness, and give you the only judgment without grace. And may the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. That's what we should hear. But because Jesus became a curse for us when we stand before God on judgment day, and he hypothetically says, why should I let you in? We say, because the son bore your wrath for me. Because the son became a curse for me. So that God no longer looks at us, just as he looked at Jesus and he didn't see the perfect spotless lamb, he saw a man who was cursed. So when we stand before God on judgment day, if we are in Christ, God, God doesn't look at us and see a man who is cursed. He sees the spotless, sinless, perfect lamb of God and his righteousness imputed and given to us. This is the heart of God. Not just the gospel, this is the Christian faith. That we who were sinners have been justified by the death of Jesus. So we can say with full confidence, yes, Jesus died for my sin. And I hope that we would think about, just every now and then, what the weight of that truly means. So to the the non-Christian here, I pray this morning, I pray that, that you would hear those words, that you would understand that I'm not making those up, that the eternal creator of the universe, that those are his words, that God's wrath is not a man-made idea, God's wrath comes from God, and that God's love is so great that he would send his son to bear the wrath himself. There is no love like, (laughs) we go back to that in Christ alone, right? And as on that cross Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, right? The love of God is magnified, and what Christ accomplished. So uh, I, I I didn't ask him to do this, so sorry, Chris. But I'm going to ask Chris if you wouldn't mind coming up, um, playing on the piano for a little bit, as we have just a time of response. Um, and I really I really do. We we just open our altar. We don't say if you want to trust in Christ, repeat this prayer. Um, you know, God condemn us if we do that. Um, but but I would say if if you if you know that the Spirit of God is stirring you to repentance and belief in Christ, I pray that you would find someone and you would you would mention that to them this morning. I don't want I don't want someone leaving and thinking, man, I think something, I think God was doing something. Um, I, I would I would really encourage you um, to not to not ignore that. Understanding what we've just spoken about this morning. So God, uh, we come to you today and we are thankful. For the truth that we, uh, that we heard from your word, God, that you were righteous and you were holy, full of justice. Uh, God, and we delight that you have wrath against sin. We delight that you hate sin. God, help us to hate sin. Lord, and we thank you most of all that even though your wrath uh, is deservedly would be aimed at us in our sin, God, that we would be cursed before you, that because Jesus bore your wrath upon himself, because Jesus became a curse for us, God, that you look at us and you no longer pour your wrath out on us. You pour out your love forever and ever on us, that you no longer look at us and see us as cursed men and women, but that those of us in Christ, you look at us and you see the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for that truth, God. We pray these things in Christ's name.